Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I, as we come to worship you on this January 1st, it's, uh, there are certain times of, of the year that, that cause us to sort of reflect and take inventory of our lives. And, and so, Father, as we are here on the beginning of this year, 2017, uh, Father, we are starting our year out um, with our eyes on you. Lord, I ask that uh, you would help us, Lord, as we continue our journey through Matthew, uh, Lord, as we sort of introduce ourselves uh, to the Olivet Discourse, Lord, I ask that your uh, spirit would guide us. May your spirit illuminate the meaning of the text uh, in context and correctly. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand um, what your word says and that it wouldn't just be intellectual, Lord, but that we would uh, take it into our hearts, Lord, that we would walk with you, that we would be devoted to you. And Lord, we uh, need your help. And so today, Lord, uh, we ask you to guide us, to direct us. Uh, Lord, may we draw closer to you uh, through this time of worshiping you, through the studying of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to the point came up to point out the temple buildings to him and he said to them do you not see all these things truly i say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down as he was sitting on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. Uh, we ask that you would guide our time now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we haven't been in Matthew since September. As we were sort of heading towards the holidays, I realized in planning out Matthew, sort of the last few chapters, that we would be entering the crucifixion just as our 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 calendar here that, that we sort of celebrate, we'd be kind of covering the crucifixion going into Christmas. And so I thought it might be appropriate to take a little break in Matthew. And so now that we've celebrated Christmas, we've celebrated his coming we're turning the page and we're literally, uh, until from now until Easter, we're going to be sort of marching uh, to the crucifixion. Um, as you can tell, I sort of cut the passage off. Uh, today is just, I hope to sort of, it's New Year's Day. I, I hope to give us a little, the primer on the Sermon on, uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, on the Olivet Discourse, um, to sort of get our bearings back in Matthew, figure out where we've been, figure out where we're going. And in these first four verses, I, I do feel that there's, you know, they're, they're kind of appropriate for New Year's and sort of um, starting the year outright, getting our eyes on Christ. Uh, we'll take communion today. And so uh, this is this exciting time of year. Um, we begin in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. This is an obscure text. If you're just opening your Bible, you open to Matthew 24, 
you, you haven't been in Matthew for a while. And it's like, so they left the temple and now his guys are pointing out the buildings to him. Like, what, what's, what's happening here? And so to answer that question, sort of to remind us of where we've been, um, Matthew has been going along. The first 20 chapters of Matthew cover really years upon years upon years of Jesus's life. And then you get to chapter 21-ish, and things sort of slow down chronologically. So from Matthew 21 until basically the end of Matthew, this is the Passion Week of Christ. And so from here until the end, we're going to cover about two days of Jesus's life. Uh, Matthew suddenly slows down, uh, gives every little bit of information uh, that's relevant to the case that he's making for Jesus's messiahship. His, his audience is a Jewish crowd. His audience cares deeply about authenticating Jesus as the Messiah. Gentiles, it's, I mean, it's important to us, but it's not the same as to a Jewish person. And so Matthew is saturated with, with quotes of the Old Testament and, and, and assurances and authentications and validations that Jesus indeed fulfills that he is the Messiah that we call the Christ. And so uh, Matthew 21, it's Jesus on the donkey making his triumphal entry. He rides, into, um, he rides into the temple. He's on a donkey, not a war horse. Uh, as a king, sort of they have their palm branches, their national pride. He enters in. He enters into the temple and sort of kicks over tables, lets everybody know that they're messing up. Um, that was on Sunday. And then from 21 verse 18 till about 2339, there's Monday and Tuesday. He's going back and forth. The, the main thrust of that section is he's challenging the religious leaders. It gets heated. They, they try to trip him up. They try to trick him. And he just is, he, he is the Messiah. So you can't trip him up. And so he continues as they try to pin him into a corner, he comes back with them, and, and basically their, their whole argument is decimated. They have it in their minds that they're now going to execute him. They've got to, they've got to somehow stumble him to um, get him into custody. They're coming up with their plan. Jesus, at the very end of chapter 23, it's the section of the woes, where he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. This is hot and heavy against the Pharisees and the scribes to the religious leaders of the day. He's challenging them. At the very end of, verse, of chapter 23, verses 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he says this to the leaders in the temple. And basically he turns from there and he walks out of the temple. You, you get the, the impression that he's furious with them. These religious leaders who have been established by God to sort of shepherd the flock of Israel have done nothing of the sort. They've only sort of trapped people in religion and a system of works, and they're profiting off of um, uh, profiting off the people. And it becomes sort of a multi-million dollar business. 
This is in the throes of the Passover, one of the high holidays. People have descended from around the world. He turns and he walks out. 24 verse 1, he walks out of the temple. This is literally the last time he would walk out of the temple. He's, he's now done with the temple. He would no longer enter into the temple. We know that, um, that it's about Tuesday. We gather that if you turn over to the, the second verse of chapter 26, and we read, um, well, really verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished all of these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for the crucifixion. And so we sort of do the math. The Passover was different. It's not a normal Sabbath. It's a high holiday. So the Sabbath would actually begin on Thursday afternoon. So you subtract a couple days. We know that we're about Tuesday. If you have a Bible that has red letter writing in it and you look at chapters 23, 24, it just looks like a whole lot of red. And it's very easy to sort of miss these two uh, sermons of Christ and to sort of merge them into one. What, what happens between chapter 23 and chapter 24 is two totally separate sermons. Uh, the, the one in chapter 23 is just, I think, is known as the fourth discourse. Not all Jesus' sermons get names. This is just like the fourth one in Matthew. When we come to chapters 24 and 25, it's what's known as the Olivet Discourse. The reason that it's known as the Olivet Discourse is because it happens on the Mount of Olives. It's really simple. Um, and so he sort of storms out of the temple. And as he storms out of the temple, he has this huge crowd of followers. I believe his disciples were there, the 12. And then he also had disciples that were sort of broader than the 12. There were a hu- it was a huge group of people. The place is packed. And, and this whole... When he comes out, when he's going away, when, the, when, when his disciples came up to point out the buildings to him, it's almost like, oh man, Jesus is, ner- like, Jesus is angry. Let's, as they storm out there, Jesus, turn around. Look at, look at the beauty. The, the temple was huge. I, I mean, this is Herod's second temple. There, uh, <clears throat> the, the light would shine and the gold would just radiate. Beautiful. It was it was one of the wonders of the world during that time, and, and really still is. You, you go to Jerusalem today, there's just, uh, this last trip, our t- guide was really funny. Like, I saw, he, was, he set up everybody. We, we pull up, and he's like, okay, guys, it's like you're at, you're at uh, the wild animal park. It's like, hey, everybody, I want you to look out to the left side. There's, you know, there's gazelles and stuff over there. So he's talking, everybody's like, okay, everybody, I want you to look out the left side of the bus, yada, yada, yada. He's saying stuff, and I'm like, why is he saying the left side? I know it's not the left side, but everybody's on their window. Like people on the right side of the bus go around. Then the bus comes to a stop. He's like, hey, guys, I'm just joking. I want you to look out the right side of the bus. And they turn around. And it's like you see from the Mount of Olives over to the Temple Mount. And you just see the the gold dome. And everybody was just like, beautiful, breathtaking. And so these guys are like, Jesus, look at these huge buildings. This is the house of God. Like, you're all frustrated, but look at this beauty. And and they had their minds sort of on the wrong things. And so Jesus says to them, do you not see all these things? This this phrase stood out. All these things, he's like, this is just stuff. God's not operating in here anymore. 
These guys are robbers and thieves, and they've. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. God is supposed to be working here. This is just stuff. Sort of a, a sort of a scathing response to Jesus. Sort of like a, ah. Uh. And I and I think that they're sort of like pointing out the majesty. And if we were to go back a few verses to Matthew twenty three thirty eight, Jesus basically as he's as he's scolding the religious leaders, he tells them that that this place is going to end up desolate. He begins prophesying that the temple will be destroyed, and it happened. It was fulfilled in A.D. 70. And he says, guys, this is just stuff. Don't get your eyes on stuff. And so today, we're, you know, we're, my plan was to have sort of a, a shortened message today to sort of ease us in to, to the, the Olivet Discourse, um, sort of with a, an idea of is there anything here that we can sort of look at going into the new year? And this is one of the things, all of these things, it's so easy to get our eyes on stuff and possessions. I think that the Bible talks about possessions as, and sort of the, they're inert, they're neither good nor bad, but stuff, stuff that you have or stuff that you desire, I think it exposes the condition of your heart. How, how does your heart relate to stuff? The Bible tells us that we should have sort of stuff open-handed, that if God wants to bless us with stuff, fine, it's his, and we'll honor him with it. If he wants to take it away, fine. But our hearts and our worship should be on Christ, on God. And so they, while he's telling them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And so he gives this prophecy and he says, you guys, all this stuff is going to be, be torn down. The history sort of as it unfolds. Um, today, my, my plan wasn't really to go into the, the huge historical event that happened. But in AD 70, we know that uh, well, in AD 66, four years before AD 70, the Jews began to revolt against Rome. And things sort of came to a head. And in AD 70, a warrior basically accidentally, he basically accidentally set the temple on fire, and then all the gold melted, and they went through, and, and to collect the gold, they basically tore all of the bricks apart so that they could get all of the, all of the gold, and the, the temple was absolutely destroyed. And so Jesus says this, and he's prophesying what will happen, and it did happen. This destruction is coming. And then in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3, not to skip ahead. And we read, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So if you're just casually reading this, you can miss the, geolo- the geographical shift in the story. So what I have up here is, is a, a very sort of cropped version of, of Jerusalem during this day. Uh, so you can see the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, modern-day Israel, if you were to look at the picture, there's the big Dome of the Rock uh, and the Temple Square. Um, I, I probably have a pointer somewhere down there, but basically on the front of the building to the right, that's the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall that you see in sort of the news reports. Um, this finger right here is the City of David. This is sort of old Jerusalem. And to the right of it or sort of on the top part, you'll see that there's sort of a, a, right here, it's a valley. And then you see the Mount of Olives up over there. So 
In real life, I don't know exactly how far this is. I don't think it's quite a mile, maybe a mile. To, you have to walk down the hill, and then you walk up the hill. It's a decent distance. And from that location, it's a beautiful view. This is, if you want to take in Jerusalem, if you want to take in the Temple Square, this is where you go to, to view it. And so the story moves in this one verse. Jesus probably left out of the front of the temple and then would have headed down and then up the hill. And so it happens really quickly, but there's a huge geographical move in the story. And so they come out of the temple, they sit down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want to give these guys, like I'm really... These guys seem to be maturing in their questions. I'm actually quite proud of them. Like up to this point, all of their questions related to the kingdom were, it was like, where's my, where's my place going to be? Like, I get that you're going to be numero uno, but that second spot, who's going who's gonna to have that? You know, John and James, the two brothers, had their mom say, hey, Jesus, when you're setting up camp up in heaven in the kingdom, it would be really good if you're my two boys, you know, James and John, one on the right, one on the left, right there, sort of as we're, as we're getting the structure. Jesus over and over, and it says, guys, the, the kingdom of heaven is not like an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, hey, look, at here's a little child. And he places this little child on his lap and says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, look at this child and follow his or her example. And so now their, 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 their question is different. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He's saying that the temple's going to be destroyed. And so their question doesn't necessarily relate to sort of their position in the kingdom. They're now sort of concerned about the timing. They ask a a terribly complex question. And Jesus is going to answer their question sort of probably in not a way that they or any of us would answer the question because he's God and we're not. But chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus' response to this question. They think they're asking one they they think that they're asking one question or they they think that the question they're asking that that the three things that they're asking are sort of one event. They believe that the destruction of the temple, the return of Jesus as a national savior, and the end of this current age and the beginning of the messianic kingdom, they think that those three events are sort of one event. But the reality is, is each of these are, are really complex questions. And I'm not going to stand here and say that I have all of the answers. I'm going to do the best job working through Matthew 24 as I can, 25 as I can. Of all of Jesus' sermons, this is probably the most difficult discourse of all of them because he's speaking prophetically. There are things that God knows and, and we don't. I certainly have firm opinions on what this is saying. But at the same time, like God is God and he, he's going to allow this stuff to unfold as he sees fit. Um, so, so, our, so our aim is not necessarily to, to look at this all today. We're going to spend the next 
I think we're like about five weeks out of, of working through the Olivet Discourse. This is sort of like a, in, in some ways, is a, is a mini compilation between the book of Daniel and Revelation, sort of all sort of squeezed in there. Jesus is, is now going to begin expounding upon his coming kingdom. His second coming, although I don't know that they necessarily understood at this point that Jesus was about to be crucified, that he'd be buried, and that he'd rise on the third day, and that he'd ascend into heaven. I don't, we look back at that. They didn't necessarily understand all that was happening in their midst. And so we're, we will get to Jesus' answer, but it's New Year's Day. And as I've been focusing on sort of the new year, I, I don't do New Year's resolutions, but I'm, I am a very like analytical guy. I like to evaluate my life, evaluate where I'm going, sort of think about things. Uh, what am I going to do to grow spiritually this year? Um, I don't know, like I don't want to, do do does anybody here actually do resolutions? I don't know if you can put people on the spot, but you know, maybe you do resolutions, maybe you don't. I don't, like not all resolutions are bad. I think resolutions can be good if you keep them. <laughs> Most of us make New Year's resolutions, and then by Tuesday, we've forgotten about them. Uh, like, there's some guys that make serious resolutions. Like, I think, like, Jonathan Edwards, who changed our nation with the, one of the Great Awakenings, he has his resolutions that were powerful. And he resolved, like, weekly to go over his resolutions and to keep them to the day he died, and he actually kept them. And they're powerful. And I think, how did a 21-year-old or a 19-year-old, however old he was, come up with these profound revolu- uh, resolutions? But so when I look at the beginning of Jesus' answer, I think it's a, one of the things that I think that we should aim for as followers of Christ looking at the new year, I think Jesus' like beginning of his answer summarizes sort of like what should be our goal. All, if you're a follower of Christ, it should sort of, uh, it's a good sort of memory verse to sort of take into the year. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Really simple. Now, of course, he's going to expand upon this, and he's talking about he's talking about his coming kingdom. He's talking about things that we're going to look at at the next four weeks. We're really going to dig in over the next four weeks. In fact, next week we're going to do we're going to start at verse one again, and we're going to go to verse fourteen, and we're going to sort of take this deeper. But at a sort of a, a superficial, I don't know, superficial New Year's Eve, like misleading. What are things that we can do not to be misled from Christ? And I think of a couple things. I think that there's sort of positive things that we can do. Like last year, I I sort of said, I'm like, hey, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And I got through it last year. And then this year, I'm like, I don't know that I'm going to do that again. I think I'm going to go for another approach to sort of grow deeper in my my prayer life. deeper into the text that I'm teaching so that I'm spending more time meditating upon it so I'm not so rushed. I'm going to be more specific about things that I'm allowing to go into my mind, into my heart. Like, I don't know what things that you need to be concerned about as far as being misled. I think that there's the positive approach if you're being misled. How do you stay on track with Christ this year? And then what are things that sort of lead you away from Christ that you need to sort of wrangle in so that you can stay more focused with him? You know, there's all of the, 
I don't want to say this to common answers, you know, but I do think that it's like important to be in the Word of God, that you as a Christian, that you're in the Word, that you're praying. I think that fellowship and being in a church where the Bible is being taught is critical for Christians. The Word describes that, that we're not to forsake um, the fellowship with one another. As we take communion today, I think communion is really like the ultimate guardrail. As we, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, by, this is you know, Tuesday of Jesus' life. By Thursday, possibly, there's some debate. Was it Wednesday night? Was it Thursday? I don't know that I have the answer, but it's, we'll just, I'm just going to go with that we're on Tuesday, that the Lord's Supper was on Thursday. And I think about this Passover meal on Thursday, and I think of John chapters 13 through 17 that gives us this, this really this, this big picture of this last night that these guys had with Christ. And as he took the bread and he began again sort of letting them know that he was about to be handed over, that he would ultimately give his life, that his body would be broken. I can't help but to think, you know, we, we do communion. It's one of these things like there's a convenient, we kind of, mixed up how the rows are, which sort of, we used to just have it where we could easily come up and take communion, and now there's like, okay, we got to handle the logistics of pack, passing out the, the juice and the crackers, and how do we go about it to be most effective? And, but I think for these guys, like, like what they went through that night, and I think that the intention of communion, I'm pretty sure that they would have had some post-traumatic trauma in that 24-hour window of breaking bread with Jesus, him saying this about his broken body and his juice and the juice that's his blood. I, I can't help but to think for the rest of their lives that every time somebody passed the bread that they were taken back to this night, that it was almost a, a, a daily sort of thing. And we don't know, the scripture doesn't say, but I, I'm just, I, I'm trying to throw myself into their situation. That daily they were remi- reminded of Christ's broken body. Every time a wine glass would come and they would take a sip, I remember that. And we, we see how their lives so radically changed after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. For, for sure, Pete, Peter, who's one of my favorite guys, this, to see all of the silly things he did, sort of walking with Jesus, the sort of go get him attitude only to fail you know, moments later. But after the resurrection, everything changed in Peter's life. Peter was a different man. John was a different man. They they all were. And so communion is one of these things that forces us, reminds us of, of the jugular vein of Christianity. It is the essence that if you strip everything away and you take communion, we're reminded of the very core of, of what the Christian life is all about. If you'll turn with me, the first Corinthians 11. So often we do communion and, and it's very easy just to sort of tack it on at the end of the service. And I wanted to sort of set us up today so I didn't feel rushed sort of talking through this passage. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 33. And then we're going to sort of address them out of order. 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, for it received from the Lord that which I all, that which all, that, let me start over here, take two, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So this is probably the most exhaustive teaching on communion, on the Lord's Supper. Why do we as Christians celebrate this, this ordinance. There are two ordinances that, that followers of Christ celebrate. There's the Lord's Supper that is done as often as you do it. It's okay to do the Lord's Supper every single day if you desire to do that. Um, some great men and women in history have literally taken communion every single day. I find no problem with that. Um, churches, some offer it every Sunday, some do once a month. I shoot for once a month. Sometimes we do it more. Sometimes we do it less. It's just sort of, to me, is driven by the text or the occasion. And so I want to start with these. The first element that I see in this passage begins in verse 27 and goes down to verse 32. And the key in this is sort of that communion forces us to a place of confession, um, It's about sort of relationship with God. For those of you that might have uncertainty about where you stand with God, this can be sort of a a critically challenging, confusing sort of theological concept. So there are two people or types of people in the world There are those who have received Christ as their Savior. Those are what we call Christians. And there are those who have not received Christ as their Savior. Those are outside of Christ and what the Bible describes as being in Adam. They're separated from God because of their sin. The Bible makes it very clear that to move from Adam to in Christ is is. Super duper simple. Like it's so simple, 
that it throws us into sort of, it doesn't work like our economy. The Bible makes it really clear, Ephesians 1.13 is a good passage to, to sort of make a note on, that we're told there that an individual, after hearing the gospel, and the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose from the dead, that all of this happened to make payment for our sins. That's the gospel. You can know about the gospel. You can say that you identify with the gospel. You can do all of that stuff and not be a Christian. In Ephesians 1.13, we're told that when you hear about the gospel, at some point in your life, you respond to it, that you say, I believe. I trust that he did that for me. I give him my life. And at that moment, we're told, at that moment of belief, I don't think there's a sinner's prayer. I don't think that there's a walk in the aisle. That whenever that, that trigger happens, and I believe it's a moment, we're told that in that moment of belief, at that moment, you're sealed by the Spirit. And Ephesians goes on to say that it's, it's almost like a down payment for a house. It's, irrevo- it's, it's irrevocable. That your position with God is secure based on belief. So if you're here and you're not certain about your relationship or where you stand with God, I don't care how much sin you have in your past, I don't care what you've done in your past, Christ's death on the cross is sufficient to bring reconciliation between you and God, period. It's not like he covers 80% and leaves you to cover that last 20%, that which you can attain. There is no, there is no fractional amount that you can even on your own accord you have no righteousness to offer in this equation. We are beggars. And you are beggars that maybe aren't even begging, but the reality is, is that God has offered a way that you might be reconciled to him. And it's through faith. It's a gift. So if you haven't believed, I, I would encourage you to grapple with this the whole idea of walking the aisle, the whole idea of praying a prayer, I, I, I think that there's some confusion. I believe that the walking aisle in the New Testament, I feel that that's what baptism is. At some point after belief, the Bible talks about this other ordinance, baptism. And then we walk the aisle publicly and are baptized. It's a symbol. It's symbolic of something that's already happened. It, baptism doesn't save us. It's just this, no, I've made this decision. I'm following after God, and this is what happened. And it's this beautiful picture sort of for the world to see the, to see the gospel. Now, for those of us who have believed, if you've believed in Christ, you've heard the gospel, you've believed, you've been sealed by the Spirit, your salvation is secure. The Bible makes it clear that Christ offers eternal life. And what kind of eternal life would it be if you make it 20 years, then suddenly you stumble and then God takes it away? That's not any sort of eternal life. You didn't get saved by your works. You're not lost by your works. But our fellowship, our relationship with God, if you're a believer, if you've truly believed and you've been sealed by the Spirit, and you are living your life, and then you basically, and all of us are, 
if you are missing the mark and sin is in your life, what this sin does is it, 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 it basically damages our relationship with God. Not that we're not still children of God. I, I liken it to, to, to married life. Like when you're fighting with your wife, do you feel like uh, you, you, there's, 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 there's a barrier between the relationship? You're still married. Maybe you have a fight with your parents or, or whatever. They're still your parents. But, but the sin sort of creates this, this divide. And so this is what this communion, this part of evaluating, Paul is speaking to Corinthians who are believers. And these Corinthians, oh man, this is like Jerry Springer of the New Testament. This, there were crazy things that were happening amongst these people whom Paul refers to as saints. And so the first aspect of communion, when we come to the broken body and, and symbolic blood of Christ, we're forced to sort of examine, what sin do I have in my life? What areas of my life am I holding back on? And if you can't think of anything, I would suggest that you confess your pride. Because in this lifetime, we... we I, the Bible makes no picture that we'll attain sinless perfection in this life. The difference between an unsaved person and a saved person is we're all sinners, except I'm now a saved sinner, and a person apart from Christ is an unsaved sinner. Amen? This is important. So communion forces us to sort of re- reflect on our own lives. It's a time for us to confess 1 John 1, 9 And 10 talks about that as we confess our sins, that God is faithful and that he'll cleanse us, he'll restore us. He is a loving God. He's a God that is quick to forgive, quick to to fill us with the Spirit, quick to enable us to move on in this life. Satan wants nothing more than to tell you that you've sinned, you've fallen short, you're a loser, God can't use you to, to bench you. God says, come to me. I'll cleanse you. I'll forgive you. And so communion is this time where we come before God. We, in the quietness of our hearts, we confess. The the second aspect in this, this heart of communion is found in verses 23 to 25. And so this is where it says, where I received from the Lord that which I shall also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to me, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when we come to the cracker, when we come to the juice, these are symbols like my wedding ring. I do this all the time. My wedding ring is here. Am I still married? I'm still married. I put this little gold band on my finger. I'm just as married as I was before. But this little band is a symbol. It takes me back to the, oh, I remember that day. Actually, it was a couple of months before I actually got married. I went down to the store and we bought these and I had it in my possession or Anna had it in her possession. But the night before, I remember like our wedding day, I had it in my possession for some reason. I don't know why I had it, but I was like, feels the same. Feels the same. Why tomorrow when I do this, will I be married? Well, this means nothing. But this is symbolic. It's a reminder to me when I stood before 
all of our friends and family and before God and I made some vows. Communion is the same way. We're going to have a little cracker. And just for the record, as a little logistical note, we've been sort of trying to figure out how to um, accommodate the distribution. So all of the crackers are gluten-free now. We found some Jewish crackers. They're not okay for the Seder, but they're okay for communion. But they're gluten-free. All of the crackers are gluten-free. You won't be able to tell the difference um, because all of the crackers are always not tasting the best anyhow. (laughs) So all of them are gluten-free. But so we hold that little broken cracker, and it reminds us that some 2,000 years ago that Christ came and he was brutally executed on the cross. And the reason that he was brutally executed on the cross was for my sin, for your sin, for our sin. The, the little cup of juice is symbolic of his blood that was shed. It's this new covenant that we're secure in him. We have life in him. We have hope. And so as we take that first step of reflecting and confessing and sort of getting right with God, we come to the cracker and the juice and we're reminded, it's not about me. It's about him and what he did on my behalf. His body was broken so that I might have life. This cup, this juice is a reminder of his blood that was shed for me. I am secure in him. It's not on my own works. So if Satan's telling you that you're worthless and you've, you know, your sins have separated you from God, he says, amen. But his body was broken and, and his blood was shed for me so that I might have life. I'm good with God, not based on anything that I've done, but based on everything that he did for me. And then there's an aspect of the communion that is so often overlooked, and that's verse 26. In verse 26, we're told that for often as you eat this bread, we're not told how often to do it, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we, number one, take some time to reflect on our own lives, as we confess to God, as we then, number two, take the cracker and the juice and we reflect upon what Christ has done for us, The third element is that we're reminded that what he did, he did for all. Jesus died for all. And I don't know what God was thinking. Then his next step was to take his church as a light into the world that we've been sort of placed as his ambassadors. You know, this this new election cycle has been sort of fun to watch or maybe heart. I don't know. It's just been entertaining. I'll say like that's. I don't, I don't want to ruin the mood of everything, but it's a. Uh, but it's sort of like it's been very educated. Maybe this is the first one I've gone through with kids that are getting older, and to see sort of like these these cabinet appointees that are being placed in various parts of the world, and ambassadors are sort of being, uh, you know, sort of situated. And so this whole concept of these these foreign ambassadors, that the Bible in Second Corinthians chapter five actually talks about us being. Christ ambassadors on this earth that we're of this or we're in this world but not of this world that our citizenship is in heaven and so as we take communion we're reminded that we're here in this place in this location where we live and we've been given this great commission to go and every time we we take communion we're instructed to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes When we die or when Christ returns, 
there'll be no more communion. We'll be in his presence forever, worshiping him in glory. But this side of heaven, we take communion to reflect, to remember. And we're reminded that he has given us this this commission, that we are his ambassadors, reconciling the world to him. And why in the world would he use us as broken vessels to do that? I can't answer that question. I'm in awe that he can ever use any one of us. I'm in awe that he could use a guy like me to teach his word, to help people grow. It's, it's, I don't get it. But so as we take communion, I'd encourage you to say, who are my neighbors that don't know Christ? Who are my family members that don't know Christ? Who are the people that I work with that don't know Christ? How can I be used by God to reach them with the gospel? And you might come back with that, I have no idea. And that's when we say, Lord, like I'm available. If you can use me, that would be wonderful. Lord, I want to pray for my neighbor that doesn't know Christ, and I don't have a clue on how to share Christ with them. I actually can't even imagine them coming to Christ. And so communion sort of keeps us focused on the main things. And this year, if we can stay focused on Christ, we're not going to be misled. If we stay in the word, you're not going to be misled. I had one seminary professor, and I know I've shared this story with you guys over and over again, but I only went to seminary one time, and I only have like the stories that I have. (laughs) But I'll never forget the one class where the student was all into apologetics and wanted to go out and basically argue and defend and attack all of the various religions that were off course. And so he always had these questions, and it's like, no, man, you're, you're asking the same question over again. And the professor looked at him, and he's like, Joey, or whatever the guy's name was, he said, if you want to become a masterful apologist for God, what you need to do is you need to master grace. If you understand grace, if you understand the true nature of who God is, nobody will be able to lead you astray and nobody will be able to because all false religions where they err on is they all fall to a system of works. That was just free of charge. So we have a couple guys that are going to come out and they're going to... Rick, you guys can come up now. Um, I don't know who all was recruited. Um, But they're going to pass out the elements. And the last verse... Here, verse 33, it says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So they're going to pass out the elements, and once they're all distributed, we will, we will take communion together. But, but take this time to, uh, to, to reflect. Everything that we talked about, reflect, confess your sin, uh, just to, to meditate upon God. The worship team can stay down just to kind of, I know we were supposed to sing a song now, but I, I want the worship team to be able to take communion without being rushed. And Father, as we hold this broken cracker and this juice, Father, I am in awe of your kindness, in awe of your love for us. I'm filled with gratitude that you're a God, the only God, 
who would come to this earth. To humble yourself into a poor Jewish family. To, to, live your, to live life free of sin and stain. Being tempted every way as, as we are. And that you would innocently go to the cross. The most horrific, the most shameful form of execution that the weight of the world's sin would be placed upon Jesus and that he would fully absorb it completely. But I don't think that we can fathom the magnitude, the cost, the weight of this gift that has been offered to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow day by day this year and every year, Lord, that we would grow greater aware of the greatness of your holiness, that we would become more keenly aware of our need of a Savior. Lord, as we take communion, we ask that we would not take it lightly. We are grateful, Lord, for this life that we have in Christ I pray for those, Lord, who are wrestling with their position with you that might not have clarity. Father, I pray that you would help them to come to the place where they would understand what the gospel is, that they would truly understand grace. Father, as we take this communion, as we reflect on your broken body and the blood of the new covenant, Lord, that you would bring to mind those that we know and love and maybe don't even like that need you as their Savior. Lord, help us as a church to be a light to this world. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.